0: Welcome back, friends, fellow philosophers, and authors to this Wild Isle writing cast. I have with me an honored guest, Kristen Nolan. How are you doing, Kristen?
1: I'm doing good. How are you doing?
0: Uh, Fantastically. I'm really glad to have you on today. For those of you who won't know who you are, uh, why don't you introduce yourself, let them know uh, what you do and uh, where they can find your material, your work, your services, anything you want to offer. Okay.
1: Um, I'm Kristen Noland. Um, I edit speculative and crime fiction. Uh, I own Noland Editing, and you can find that at nolandediting.com. And yeah, that's, that's me. I've edited around mm, just over 70 books so far, um, and I have two bestsellers um, that I've edited, not that I've written yet. Um, but yeah, that's a little bit about me. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Kristen. So any of you listening out there looking for an editor, um, check out her website. We'll have that all linked below um, in the description. And you can also check out my website, as you guys know, wildisolit.com, where I host all kinds of things, uh, excerpts, short stories, essays, blog posts. Uh, You can check out my novel there, Smoke." broken, a weird fantasy fiction novel with, uh, let's say, gas lamp and uh, steampunk elements kind of thrown in there. Uh, I always describe it as reading kind of like a Western, though some people kind of disagree with that. Anyway, check that out. It's all on audio for free, again, over at wildislelit.com, as well as the rest of these Podcasts, and if you're looking for a uh, line editor in particular, you can check out the Wild Isle Style guide over at my website. Uh, I can help you refine your manuscript in style so that you are not merely writing down and slapping down content that you are a- composing something that is a joy to read um, you know embedding music in your manuscript. All right, enough of that we're going to get onto to the topic today which I have hopefully cleverly named reading your vegetables, uh, with the question, is it vital to read outside of your preferred? And I've kind of added to this since I uh, brought Kristen on, but your genre outside of the plot that you prefer outside of the settings that you prefer. So should you read stuff that you typically do not like to read? Um, Particularly, we're focusing on the question of authors uh, or also editors, but even if we want to get into dedicated readers who don't write and don't edit, uh, they just they are the consumer, if you will, we can talk about uh, this question in regards to them as well. So, Kristen, just out of hand, when I ask that question, is it vital to read outside your preferred genre, plot, and setting? What do you think?
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um... Reading in all different kinds of genres gives you the exposure to um, to different plot um, things and setting as well. Um, especially like if you have an urban fantasy versus a high fantasy, you're going to see how the author takes care of the setting. Um, most of the time in an urban fantasy, it's not going to be Um, described as much as it would be in a high fantasy so yes definitely want to do those things Um, and the characters in them their character arcs um, also are a little different Um, yes they still have to have them but um, it might be smaller in a series crime fiction, um, smaller over each book and the larger character arc over the series of the books, as opposed to a standalone, which is going to have the character arc fully formed by the end. Um, Yeah, (laughs) definitely reading um, in a wide variety of things, even poetry, um, even reading poetry for writing fiction is also helpful. Um, You get the use of language is completely different and you might want to incorporate some of those um, techniques in your writing as well.
0: Yeah, I can't agree more. Uh, but we're going to dig into each of those bit by bit as we go, particularly the poetry one. Um, that's actually quite, uh, let's say, uh, was it personal to me or uh, was it close to my heart? I can't remember the turn of phrase. Um, But we will get into those before we dive too deeply in. uh, There's going to be a bit of conundrum about definitions, which is entirely my fault, um, because I have this Confucian obsession with getting words down to their uh, most functional, say, usages. Um, And so before we dive into exactly why you should uh, read outside and what might happen if you don't, because I think that's worthwhile discussing the opposite end of that as well, I want to pitch some things to you. Um, Now, this is going to be... You don't have to go too deeply into any of these because I've had an individual podcast where I've talked about each of these and then I've developed them over the course of months now. So it's too much to throw all at once uh, to someone fresh. But I wanted to talk about the idea of genre, the idea of plot, and the idea of setting um, in a way that I think will clarify things for between the two of us and the listeners. So... Without further ado, I'll go through those. Uh, We'll start one at a time, and then you can tell me what you think. So here on the Wild Isle podcast, I've been trying to push this idea that uh, genre is kind of a a blurry concept that uh, isn't as useful as it could be because we have to continuously add subgenres and subgenres. And the reason why is that we typically are very undisciplined with our use of the word genre, and it's been highly contaminated due to the market using the word and trying to find market categories. So what I've tried to do um, through reading outside of, let's say, the genre of fiction into nonfiction, because the word genre has been used to apply to those as well, right? Fiction, nonfiction, poetry. Um, I read a lot of philosophy, and I have an idea that when we're talking about genre, it has to have in essence, right? What that means is something it ties down to specifically. And I've thought a lot about what the other elements of literature are, particularly in regards to plot and setting. And if I strip out elements of plot and I strip out elements of setting and I say, what is left for genre? If it is to be meaningful, I've kind of come down to the fact that actually genre refers to something like Aristotle's telos, right? It's you could translate that as function. I like to translate it as purpose because as soon as you, are not purpose, sorry, other way around, you could translate it as purpose. I like to think of it as function. The reason why is because if I say the word purpose, people suddenly say, well, different people have different purposes, and that's true. But if I say the word function, a thing does a thing or it doesn't do that thing, right? Regardless of a person being there, like an acorn grows into an oak tree, regardless of whether or not the person has that purpose for the tree. And without having to reinvent the wheel, uh what I discovered is actually there are um genre categories that work this way. Um and I've I've listed a few of them here to give you a rough idea and then you can Um, very, very shortly, tell me what you think of this conception of genre. We'll do the same thing with plot and setting. And then I think that will lay the groundwork so we can continue the uh, conversation very clearly. So for genre, I found thriller, as much as I actually kind of hate the name for it, works pretty well um, because it fits on to one of our, uh, let's say, biological systems, which is our adrenal system. Uh, The same thing is true for horror. Right. So if you think of the fight or flight response, um, thriller is the excitation, that uh, fight response, the moving forward toward a thing, whereas horror is the flight, the fear, the moving away from a thing. Um, And those are, you know, physiological responses. And I even included in this one, I have a hard time finding a name for, but I think of uh, fiction that's often referred to as spiritual or metaphysical as being that sensation of awe. And that sensation of awe is not quite fear. It's more like that freeze response that you get when you see something too grand for one's own real momentary comprehension and you're just stricken. Um, And then we could go down to some more things like erotica is obviously sexual arousal. And I've even thought of the, uh, typically the drama genres of Comedy and tragedy being tied down to the dopaminergic and serotonergic systems. Comedy obviously being joyous, um, and that being the reward mechanism, the the happiness that we feel, and then a tragedy being interrelated to you could you could say sorrow, but I've looked at it uh, a little bit more deeply, and I think it's related to catharsis in the classic Greek Greek sense, again as described by Aristotle, in which he describes catharsis as being the, the, the relief that one feels in a sense that the world is just. When you see a tragedy unfold, the tragic hero who falls actually deserves his or her fall because of their flaw that they don't overcome, which tell it's sort of like when you, you provide borders for a child. Uh, for any of you got, people listening who have kids, you'll be very familiar with this. When you provide order, the kid calms down and is actually happier and more well behaved because they can predict the world around them, which means they know how to act so they don't feel lost, which is stable. Well, now, serotonin is a tricky um, neurotransmitter, and we don't, maybe it's not even involved in this, but for the sake of having a word to use, I'll use it. That would stabilize uh, one's serotonergic system so they don't feel terrible and in despair because they're lost. And that's what I, when I'm thinking of genre and I'm thinking of reading outside one genre, I'm thinking of someone exploring those different aspects of their own emotional states through fiction or otherwise, um, in that way. So I just talked for forever. Um, so tell me if you think any of that holds water to you, if that relates to, um, how you think about genre at all and whether or not that relates to people branching off from what they're what they're used to in terms of uh, in terms of genre, as I've described it there,
1: well, I think you went very deep into your research and your theories. Um, yeah, I don't really think about the that deeply, I guess, and I'm a critical reader, um, which means I look for the themes and the messages and those kind of things and how the author gets from excuse me how an author in a certain genre um, gets their messages across and what their character's flaws are telling us about things in the setting how it affects the characters and reflects societal issues in that Um, so I haven't really gone as deep um, into my assessment of things like that Um, I do think it's important um, to have to experience different reactions to, um, to books. So like when you were saying about the horror versus um, other genres like erotica, they are two completely different um, emotional responses, which is very important to have that um, emotional responses is important through all types of fiction and nonfiction. (laughs) Um, That's, something that authors do uh, miss a lot. So yes, so reading in the different genres and experiencing the different um, emotional responses and even physical responses, um, the whole uh, thriller thing being on the edge of your seat type feeling um, versus the romance where you're just relaxed and um, enjoying a romantic relationship between two people. or three, whatever. Um, <clears throat> that those emotional responses there are what we're looking for. So, um, even like we had mentioned, poetry. Poetry is intensely emotional um, and can invoke anything from fear to love to even doubt, um, doubting yourself and those kind of things. Um, yeah. So, I think in that aspect, it's very important um, to read all different genres so you get those emotional responses and you see how the author does so. It's a lot about how the author does so when you're writing Um, so you can get a sense of what techniques they're using in order to get you to feel those things. So I find that is important in the um, reading diverse books or diversely genre books.
0: Yeah, I think we could dig and kind of root around there before even moving on. Um, So, you know, you brought up the difference in how you're going to make the reader feel, and there are techniques you mentioned that are involved in that, which means in order to reliably, now when I say reliably, I mean like about as reliable as medicine, which means it works most of the time, but there are obviously going to be cases in which a particular literary technique just, for some people, is just not going to to work even though it works most of the time so realize uh listeners out there realize that i'm not speaking in absolutes here but there are techniques that you can reliably use to excite there are there are ones that you can reliably reliably use to titillate to give someone you know a sense of calm if you're writing essentially a a romantic comedy and i know that's usually used to apply to film but there's no reason why we couldn't apply that to literature as well a romance story that is made to make someone feel happy is Kind of by definition, right, a romantic comedy. Um, So I'm curious from your uh, experience as an editor, where you've seen both people um, succeed at, let's say, the using, let's say, uh, I'll rephrase that. Can you tell when someone is widely read versus when they're not widely read in terms of their ability to apply elements outside of the genre that they happen to be, to be writing in. Right. Um, and let me know if that question isn't very clear.
1: Um, no, I can understand what you're saying. Um, I don't know that you can tell that they haven't read widely, but you can tell when they're trying to mimic a certain style or a certain type of book. Um, a lot of the times in fantasy, um, people get caught up on the setting descriptions. And in a lot of popular high fantasy novels, there is a lot um, of emphasis put on the setting. In my opinion, um, I like the faster paced books. So when I'm editing, if I come across like three paragraphs of setting description without any action, um, it becomes boring to me. Um, Other people might really enjoy it. So there's a difference in um, people like that. But what I think is best is to put action within the scene um, setting descriptions. So with the characters interacting in their um, experiences with the setting. So just taking like a huge mountain range that's being described, um, someone exiting a field and seeing this huge mountain range, um, there's a tendency to describe the entire mountain everything there that from you know the sparse trees to the deciduous trees to um you know the rock formations and the snow on the top there's a tendency to describe all of that without having the character move so they're just standing there static and looking at all of this and describing it instead of um, maybe traversing the plain that's covered in snow first and it's describing the crunch of it and the depth of it with you know they're picking up their foot and um, really trying to get to the next step and they um, and then they make it to the tree line and then describe some of the trees that are there and then go through the forest and up, you know, just describe it as they're moving, um, as they're interacting with it. Maybe they stop and build a fire, and you can describe certain things that are that are there. Um, so instead of just a blanket, here's everything right in front of you, um, kind of like a movie would pan across. You, you need to have the character move within that. Um, so in that regard, I think a lot of people m- may stick to one genre um, of reading those kind of things and that's what they want to emulate and that's great but you do need to read something else that's in the lower fantasy or like I'd mentioned urban fantasy um, or even sci-fi the way they describe those things that are less um, familiar to us um, and see how they do it through the characters actions or do they just stand there and, and list off the items that they see. Um, So like in urban fantasy, you might have a character walking down a street in a warehouse area. Do I need to describe the buildings now? I've told you it's a warehouse area. We basically already know what those kind of things look like. So in that regard, you're going to describe what's different. So you're walking in a warehouse um, area and you see this um, uh, magic shop that's in like this nestled in this little place um, in between two big buildings, you're gonna wanna describe that magic shop. Even if it's not um, the place, the destination of your character, you're gonna wanna describe that a little bit more because it's out of place. Um, So those kind of things. If you mention something about somebody being in a garage, well, people know what a garage looks like. Um, Maybe mention it's a two-story or a two-car garage and then it'll expand their vision of a garage. Um, and describe maybe certain things that are piled in a corner. Like maybe a kid's bike is in the corner that's been disused for so long because something happened to that child. Maybe they were kidnapped or something. Um, But what's important is the fact that it's been there and it's got cobwebs on it and it's a sad reminder. So that's what you're going to concentrate on describing. Does that answer your question?
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I so... (laughs) The elements in particular that you pointed out are in relation to um, character, right? A lot of them. So like if the child's missing, that might be, or or plot for that matter. So plot or Mm -hmm. character, Um, you know, like the bike being there is going to be mentioned if it's relevant to the plot or if it's relevant to a character that's relevant to the plot that it's going to affect how the other characters interact, right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, and with uh, urban, uh, what we typically call urban fantasy um, yeah absolutely because it 's contemporary uh it allows the reader to let 's say make assumptions that you don 't as easily get away with if you 're doing something like high fantasy where the uh, rules of that particular speculative universe could be different, and so you, you can 't take as much for granted uh, Another solution that I thought up too uh in in regards to fantasy and then I think we we can go ahead and jump genres to see if we could. You know, think of some more examples, is if you read nonfiction or if you read poetry, because we mentioned reading outside even the genres of fiction uh, for inspiration, for techniques. When I think of nonfiction, I think of something like a memoir. And what I've noticed about memoirs or nonfiction accounts uh, that I've read, particularly ones that are good, is that the author isn't merely describing what is happening. Often he or she is describing how he or she felt in that moment right so it's it's not just you know after it's a war uh memoir it's not merely that okay well we're describing the the battle i was in most of it isn't it's like a single few minutes where it takes up several pages because what's being described is the camaraderie among you know himself and his fellow soldiers how he felt knowing that like maybe there was like a Probably a tank around this corner and he had to check and it was like the fear and terror of, you know, turning the corner and looking down the barrel of some massive gun or watching your, uh, I don't know if you're a British officer, you're watching the commander literally pace at the top of a trench while he's being literally sniped at, um, just to keep the morale of his men up and how that felt to like watch that guy and like question, like, I couldn't be so brave. Um, You know, for nonfiction accounts, that's what they focus on, right? It's not merely what's happening, but how, how does it make the characters feel interiority is a word that uh, as pretentious as it is. And I learned in, in grad school to use for that. Poetry though also is incredibly useful because, What we do when we write poetry is we express ourselves figuratively. That's really not universally, but a lot of what makes poetry what it is, is the use of figurative language and then sound as well. But let's focus on figurative language to not have the conversation go too far in a field and let's say if you're you read a lot of high fantasy, a lot of it is raw discursion. What do I mean by that i mean it 's literal description about stuff that 's happening, and that is actually rather inefficient it 's actually extremely inefficient um, if you 're familiar with the phrase a picture is worth a thousand words then you're it, the idea that imagery conveys a lot of information very fast, and through figures of speech, you can evoke imagery in literature, which isn't um, restraint to just visual images but imagery in literature is also the the you know the sounds the smells the feels right the tastes of things and if you can through metaphor through simile through allusion uh bring about that imagery and you, you'll learn how to do if you read a decent amount of poetry because they'll be doing it line after line after line then you could take that long slow description. And you could shrink it down, and the use of that it, it gives you so much more time in order to explore those other areas. You, you know, your paragraph suddenly has now has room for that interiority, or um, you can move the character along, you can move the plot along because you have the space now to do it. You've, you've described what you needed to describe in a much more efficient way through that use of figurative language. All right, so that would be like, let's say, if we had uh, an author of fantasy incorporating other elements, Um, what if we had uh, some other type of writer? Let's go the opposite direction for fantasy. Let's say we have someone who writes, um, I don't know, if you've had anybody like this, they write uh, something like contemporary Christian fiction, something like that. I'm trying to think of something like that, that, typically reads very differently than, let's say, something like a high fantasy novel. Uh, what examples of, let's say, cross-genre uh, reading or cross, you know, just stories in general outside of what that person normally reads might be applied to someone who's writing uh, like a contemporary drama, uh, something like I described there. It doesn't have to be the, um, the what's it called, contemporary uh, Christian fiction novel can be something like that. What, what other places might they be able to read to get inspiration and learn other techniques, you think?
1: Well, definitely um, read some nonfiction for sure. Um, the memoirs, they memoirs do evoke a lot of emotions, whereas um, your nonfiction is going to be more um, factual and like a step-by-step type process, which makes things more concise, and so you get that um, concise, here's the fact type, type writing in those, um, and then we discuss poetry, which also helps you be concise, because every word in poetry is important, it's the word choice, and how con- how <clears throat> you can say a lot with just five words, Um, So, like you said, that gives you room in other genres. If you can get that, you know, um, emotion evoked in five words, then you can move the plot forward. Or if you can get a setting description done in five to ten words, then you've got that um, ability to give your facts or move your story forward. Um, You've got room for that. Um, But nonfiction... (sighs) there's a little bit of a problem with nonfiction and writing fiction, I think. Um, and that comes with point of view because nonfiction is written either in first or second person where you're talking specifically to the reader and putting them in the situation. Um, and then in first person where it's all being described from the person who's writing its perspective. Um, so there is a little bit, issue with that um, because in fiction you can write in all different kinds but we call it breaking the fourth wall talking to the reader if it's in third person or omniscient um, breaking that fourth wall isn't advised and we read a lot of that in the nonfiction um, books. And so we get used to reading that. So at times it can be somewhat of a hindrance because you have to pay attention to how it's written and why it's written that way. Um, nonfiction is written in first or second person because they're trying to get that message to the reader directly. It's a conversation between um, the author and the reader direct conversation as opposed to third person where most of the fiction is written. Um, it is getting more and more first person um, with the younger readers. I think they like that first person more which is kind of talking to the reader but you're not like in second person and actually bringing them into the scene. Um, but I do think it does help with, <clears throat> excuse me, um, seeing how the authors get their point across. Like I said, nonfiction is going to be pretty much straight to the point, um, which can help in fiction because there are times where you do want to be straight to the point. You want to get to that point as fast as possible. So, something yeah, else that, you
0: uh, to you? <laughs> no, I think that was pretty thorough. Yeah, that is good to point out the possible hindrances. I've seen this with uh, a lot of. Uh, I hate to say it this way, but somewhat uh, autistically minded uh, male authors who read lots and lots and lots and lots of nonfiction. Uh, I might even be one of these uh, potential, what's the word, demographics, right? Uh, I read a lot of philosophy. I read um, a lot of nonfiction as much as I do fiction. And there is a danger in taking on the the narrative voice that is present in nonfiction. And if you already have a propensity to do that, like so say if you write fantasy and then you read a bunch of nonfiction, the uh, voice of nonfiction is actually going to exacerbate the problems that are already there When uh, if you read a lot of, let's say, classic fantasy. Now, uh, it can be helpful even within, uh, let's say, a genre. Let's say you'd stick with fantasy for just a second If you read both older classic books and then more modern books, because as you pointed out, the change in perspective will change the narrative voice. And I think that that can help to overcome some of the the hindrances, right? Or going from, let's say, more technical books, which are going to be much more direct, dry, second-person accounts, to adding memoirs as well within the realms of nonfiction, because those are going to be much more personal and then reading across perspectives, like don't just read stories that are all written in, uh, let's say first person or second uh, person in the case of nonfiction, quite a lot of the time also read things in third person. Uh, Don't just read in third limited or third, uh, omniscient, right? Like try to vary it so you can see the difference between how the different narrators and those narrators positions in regard to you and the story. Um, affect the way that the story is told so we stuck a lot on uh genre uh, what about we could talk about plot we could talk about setting we kind of have already um i'll jump into this idea of setting because i think it'll be a little bit more interesting so i've had a couple conversations with uh, a number of speculative fiction writers and have actually come to think of settings as being a a lot of what we think of, we think of genre is attributable to setting, but there is a bifurcation there in setting. And I think the word speculative can be paired with the word prescriptive. I think that speculative is fundamentally descriptive, right? So when we write uh, a speculative story, the, the most archetypal example of this is perhaps science fiction, but we are speculating about what if this thing was different Uh, And I think this will make sense just going through the small list I have here. So setting, speculative uh, fiction, you could have historical fiction, right? And a lot of, now this doesn't have to be the case. You can put like a a random mystery story in a historical setting and then um, it's a mystery story. Is it necessarily, it could be prescriptive, it could be descriptive, um, but for the sake of what's usually the case a lot of historical fiction is like, okay, well, what if this happened in this point in history, right? So it's it's almost like alternative history. In fact, it yep. quite literally is alternative history, right? So you're speculating on an alternative history. Um, the same thing is true, I think, for all literary fiction that are set in contemporary settings. It's, okay, if this happened now, what would be the result? Again, describing the consequences of a, uh, let's say, change in the current timeline, and then science fiction being the archetype of, of this. Okay, if we develop this particular technology or cultural change in the future, what's going to happen, right? And I would pair that with prescriptive. Now, the archetype of prescriptive, I think, is fantasy, because if you look at a lot of fant- uh, fantastical works, um, a lot of it is set backward in time. And I think the reason why that is, is because it's harkened to something like uh, mythology and legend, which are oftentimes essentially moral lessons, they're like fables sh- expanded outward so that the the moral is this massive, well, moral lesson. Uh, less so with urban fantasy, um, and strangely enough, more so with science fantasy, which is how I would describe you know the difference between classic science fiction. When something like, this is kind of leaving literature, but the easy example for everyone to understand is Star Wars, right? So Star Wars is set in space with a bunch of technology, but it's all functionally magic. And you could take the entire Star Wars story, put it in a, it's a fantastical setting, much like a lot of classic fantasy is, and you really wouldn't be changing the story very much. So now bring this back around to, you know, reading outside what you're used to reading. Um... I think that there are lots of people who are very used to reading speculative set stories. Um, and there are lots of people who are much more used to reading prescriptive stories, right? So uh, to to give an example, then I'll throw it over to you. Uh, I experienced quite a lot. That there are people who are used to reading, let's say, uh, contemporary thriller novels, right? So they have a contemporary setting um, and it's like, okay... You know, if these this I don't know if these people were to invade these people or if like a spy from this nation discovered this, what would happen? Um, and there are other readers who are very, very used to reading prescriptive novels. This is again your typical fantasy reader who wants to see um, that kind of good versus evil story played out in front of them. Um, so, why might it be useful for someone who's used to say I don't know reading a contemporary? Thriller or contemporary murder mystery novel um, to read maybe something prescriptive like uh, those kind of good and evil uh, stories or vice versa?
1: Well, if you're, if you're a crime fiction novelist and you're looking for good and evil or you want to read something about good and evil in fantasy, um, crime fiction is also about good and evil. Um, we assume that the person who perpetrated the crime is evil in some way. Um, whereas, you know, in your fantasy, you also have a villain that is the perpetrator. So they, they all kind of mesh down to, um, specific elements that are across all genres. So that example there is one of them, um, what I like is when things are turned on their heads a bit. Um, So, you know, what we assume is the villain, um, why they committed a certain crime or why they um, did some bad act uh, is actually, in their view, it is a good thing that they did. So um, for murder or for crime, let's say um, a father commits murder because his daughter was murdered by someone else. In his mind, that murder was justified. Um, And if we read it from the victim's perspective, and then we see the villain's perspective, and we see that they actually are the hero of their own story, um, that kind of turns it and helps you see things from a different perspective, which I think is also very important that we see things from a different perspective. So like the speculative fiction you were mentioning, um, ask the what if questions. So what if um, a typewriter was invented 100 years before it actually was? How would that have affected society? When would we have gotten computers? When would social media, would it have even been social media that came from it? You know, And you take from a different time period <clears throat> with different values of people a hundred years before, you're going to have a different result because of of the mindset of people. Um, So um, fantasy, the good and evil, you're also, like I said, you're going to have some kind of crime in there, something that somebody did to hurt someone else um, or a plan that um, maybe, I don't know, give me an example of, of fantasy with some kind of crime in it
0: um well i've seen um in recent years i think it was like uh i I didn't read it but i I was paying attention very slightly to what was coming out i think it's a six of crows something like that it was a fantasy heist novel okay uh if that makes sense to you so the idea would be you know if you've oh go ahead go ahead
1: no i'm saying yeah the if you were talking about um stealing something like you said a heist the reason for the person stealing something could be a good reason. Um, what did they do? Let, let's say they stole um, food from a restaurant because their entire family is hungry and they've, they haven't eaten for two days. So in that aspect, that's a good thing that they stole and provided for their family, whereas the restaurateur is going to see it as an evil thing because they lost money. Um, or it you know they they're going to lose a customer because that food was stolen and now they have to prepare everything so it, it all kind of builds on one another um those things so what well, honestly i can't remember the question from the beginning
0: <laughs> and you you were answering it there so uh the question is like what could one gain from the other right like if you're reading you the examples we were using were like crime fiction right like even like say it's or even if you go outside of fiction you're reading like about true crime, how that could mm-hmm. inform someone writing uh, a prescriptive type of story where they are trying to tell um, some story that has a theme about, let's say, good and evil or human nature even, right? Because it doesn't have to be even so simplified. You could be trying to really explore a um, something that would normally be considered literary versus genre, though I kind of detest that distinction. Um, Nonetheless, you know, if you have a, a very deep theme that you're trying to convey, it, it's it's useful to know. Well, what are human beings really like? We don't we're not simplistic creatures, and if all you've ever read are very simplistic prescriptive stories, you're not going to be able to tell any type of nuanced story at all. But if you um, let's say read across the aisle there, and you investigate into let's say, some morally gray situations in which, like you mentioned, the crime to the criminal seem to be justified. Like Even if you don't agree, even if you don't intend to show, let's say, the other side is being justified in your own fiction, you will, at the very least, create a much more believable villain. Right. And your story will feel, uh, it'll have the word I would use is a greater amount of verisimilitude. It'll feel more akin to life and be believable. It won't push the suspension of, uh, it won't break, rather, the suspension of disbelief in the reader, right? The reader will feel that there is something right about that kind of of story, I think. Now, there's a, go ahead, go ahead.
1: Part of the, I think part of the reason why it's important to read different genres is because the elements of storytelling are pretty much the same throughout all the fiction. It, it's pretty much the same. I and mean, even in nonfiction, you still have scenes in nonfiction um, because they're describing something that happened and the result from that, um, they describe what they were thinking um, before they came up with the decision or the failed plans that they had, all of that is the scene construction of here's a problem. I looked at the options. So that's the decision, um, the debate portion of it. And then they make a decision and then they actually act on it. And did it work? Did it not work? Was Did it work with just a little bit of movement forward, but then something else held them back and they had to adjust, replan, rethink it um and then finally come up with a with an excellent solution. All of that is storyline in a in a scene, in a book. It's the whole storyline. So I think that reading from one genre to another, um, you still get that sense of storytelling. Um mem- same with memoir, nonfiction, all of it. They all has that element of storytelling um that is important I think that's something and we talked about the emotional responses again all through all writing there's the emotional response that you're trying to trigger so there's a the storyline and the emotional response that that goes through all um, all genres of writing so I think it's important because you're looking at things from a different perspective I know I keep using more perspective but it but you see things um, from like we were talking about, like the the baddies perspective. You can see it from there. You see it from the protagonist's perspective. You can also see it from the side character's perspective. Those people who are kind of just on the outside and looking in. Um, that happens a lot when you have a group of people and then they split up and you see um, you get chapters in different with different people on different journeys. They all see the whole as a little bit differently and their own journey. Um, you can see the same storyline. That's what the subplots are. They're all, it's all the same storyline. I hate to tell you, or storytelling, I hate to say it, but it's true. Um, So I think that's where you benefit um, from reading all different genres. You got the pacing that's different. And like we had talked about the setting that's different. And you see those techniques. Um, For me, reading cross genres is about the techniques that the authors use, um, the language that they use, Um, So you want to analyze it more than just read it. Um, There's nothing wrong with reading for pleasure, um, but when you're reading as an author, you may want to read more critically into it and look at the style and the tone um, that people put into their work. And I know I mentioned word choice, but that's also a really big thing, um, not just with High language or simplistic language or whatever, but you can guide the reader to think something by using certain words. Um, So, in um, I always use Jillian Flynn's Gone Girl as an example of that because the language that she uses, her word choice and patterns to that lead you to believe one thing when something else is actually true. And then, in that second perspective, Reveal the language used is different there to make you believe something else that may or may not be true. So I think that when you read across the genres, you really need to read critically and look into what's being um, what's being commented on by the author and how they're doing it, um, and even maybe why, so that you can get those different perspectives on how things are um, and that. And you just, you'll get this feel for it and you'll be able to write um, better, better because you have looked at all different ways to do things and get this, maybe it's a coming of age story. Well, there's tons of them out there Um, and that can mean not just from, um, you know, adolescence, but it can also be through something like a divorce. Um, that's another coming of age story. Um, or maybe somebody going into and putting their mother or father into a nursing home. There's another coming of age story and they're all different, but they have that transfer um, from one point of life to another that's that's in, like I said, multiple genres of things. Um it's kind of my opinion
0: there. <laughs> uh, it's a good one. What you've moved us into is exactly where I wanted to get to, actually, which is you're not just crafting like a story. I think oftentimes people forget about this. But when you are reading, you or writing for that matter, uh, you are improving yourself as an author. And that is something that gets woefully neglected in terms of an idea. Um you know it to the point where actually it depends on, on where you're where you're at so while while I'm in grad school everyone is focused on improving the quality of their prose but um you know upon graduating and entering into the market on my own and interacting with other authors i actually find that particularly among the like people uh, self publishing and independently publishing which my, i myself do there is a And I should say, there is an unfortunate disdain for this analytical side of reading. Um, There is this attitude like, oh, those are the snooty academics who focus on the composition of a piece or the technical aspects of story writing. Um, And they, they abandon it. And the problem with that is they don't understand why they like the things that they like they don't understand why the novels that they that work for them work and i think that also inhibits their ability to enjoy things outside of what is immediately pleasurable what do i mean well if i'm aware of what makes a story work i can now see it in something that does is not immediately pleasurable right so Um, If I understand great characterization, if I understand depth of theme and how that's communicated, uh, if I understand plot to a sophisticated degree, then I don't know, if I pick up a Dostoevsky novel and it's going to be slow, so the pacing is going to be like not as great as I would be, you know, wanting it to be. But if I can appreciate the characterization, if I can appreciate the um, let's say, layered complexities to the plot that are going on in this massive genre, uh, if I could appreciate the themes that are being very subtly communicated, because I can identify them as they're being presented to me, it actually allows me to enjoy reading that book more and you know to get far enough into it where I become invested. And what that will then teach me is how to better do what let's say in this case, a literary Russian classic does that will be uh unavailable to me if I am not able to read analytically, right? So reading outside your your typical preferred uh genre even even if we expand that onto like poetry, like maybe you don't like enjoy reading poetry, but maybe you should try right? If you're out there listeners, uh, because it, you'll find that even though you don't like it, once you recognize, let's say, how rhyme scheme work or the other elements of sound that often get quite neglected, uh, like consonants and consonants, uh, which are essentially forms of alliteration. And once you understand how to, let's say, use simile and metaphor, like a lot of people won't understand that a simile is often more specific than a metaphor, metaphor is. And so depending on what you're describing using your figurative language, it's not merely you know arbitrary preference. It's like sometimes a simile is better. If I'm describing a character's fingers, it makes more sense to say that his fingers look like sausages. But if I'm describing a whole person and their attitude, I might say, well, he's a pig. And when I say he's a pig, that means a whole bunch of things right? Because a metaphor is typically much more broad, where a simile is more specific. And then you, then all of a sudden, you know how to use these elements that were otherwise um, removed from you. And I think that's really, really an important reason. You need to read and read outside, because you'll improve your analytical skills, which will allow you to read more, which will improve your skills specifically as an author. Another example, and you can tell me... Go,
1: before, we move on, <laughs> before we move on, I wanted to say something about the poetry thing. You'd mentioned um, the rhyming scheme, but another thing that poetry teaches you is rhythm. There's a rhythm to sentences and sentence structure that is important. Um, especially when you're writing or well, editing, actually, um, that when you're looking back through things and you're reading this really long sentence necessary, you know, and it's like, okay, I think I need to, to make these you know, two or possibly even three sentences because I'm losing the, the subject in it. Um, when you change it to be shorter, you need to keep that rhythm um, that was created in the original. So it's, I don't know how to say it other than when you read it, when you read something that's, that doesn't have the right rhythm, you feel like something is off about it. You may not be able to pinpoint why exactly, Um, But you can feel that, okay, that was a really, really short sentence. I don't know why, you know, it was only three words or, or, oh, that's three words fits perfectly there. Um, So that rhythm that, that authors have, and it's, it's unique to most authors, um, but it's also, you know, in our language. Um, in the English language, we have that rhythm, whereas opposed to um, Italians going to have a different rhythm um, in their, into their language as well. And so what we have may not sound as great when it's translated. So um, we would need to change it in order to fit our rhythm of how we speak um, and how we read. So I think poetry really helps with that um, because of that Um, rhythm, and necessarily because of the rhyme um, in each line. That's all I wanted to say.
0: Oh, no, thank you for bringing that up, because that's actually something I I fixate on. It it reduces my daily word count by an unimaginable amount, because I I do, I listen to every single sentence Mm -hmm. that I write, and if it does not, and this has to do, for those of you who've done an analysis of poetry with stressed and unstressed syllables, the syllable count in a sentence relative to the syllable counts and the other sentences around it and the stressed and unstressed syllables and it's not like a mathematical formula unless you want to sound like a sing-song which is terrible um but there (laughs) is
1: not all sing-songs are terrible
0: Um, (laughs) mostly not but when you read them
1: (laughs) rhyme of the ancient mariner is awesome
0: (laughs) well there will be some that work but for the most part you you've you've heard when the the author and i've done i've been guilty of this myself uh and even sometimes like uh what was it i had I was encouraged to read a couple of the Wizard of Earthsea novels and then the first one with Ursula K. Le Guin. There are a few sentences that go back and forth where she plays on the rhyme, but it feels a bit like a nursery rhyme and it doesn't come off very great. Um, But for the most part, you mentioned you can't really describe it, and that's correct. You can only feel it. But poetry definitely helps you feel that, and that's even worth talking about just a tiny bit because I've thought a lot about what, like, what the hell is that, right? Because it's a bit mysterious. But I think that there is something – the only way I could describe it is music, right? So um, this is getting a little bit afield, but I think it's worthwhile. So I think it was Richard Wagner who had this idea that music was the most pure art form because it doesn't make direct reference to anything else. So you can have a sound that doesn't sound anything like what it makes you feel like. So you can have, you know, like there are certain tones that are sadness, essentially, even though no one makes that noise when they're sad. There's something about it that triggers that emotion in us or happiness or levity or, uh, you know, humor or wrath and anger there for whatever reason, certain tones trigger those emotions and those associations inside
1: us. It's not just the tones, but also the words and how we say them so like s words are more calming for the most part because they kind of slip out of our mouths and i mean we hear that as well (laughs) um but you know i just wanted to put that in there that that certain words evoke a certain just by the way we say them evoke a certain um emotion or connotation
0: yeah well the s's especially (laughs) they are smooth right they Uh, are swift, they slip out, they're a little bit like the water and the wind in that way. Uh, W's also, you'll notice. Uh, I just used it there. Uh, yeah, so when you're when people are writing, you know, focusing, reading poetry, that will help you feel the music, right? Um, there's a there's a quote, I think it gets attributed to Nietzsche a lot, though I've read almost all of Nietzsche's works and he doesn't say it anywhere, but it's, um, you know, those who saw them there thought them mad for they could not hear the music. And I, I sit there and say that to myself almost every single day, uh, when I'm reading things, because I've read things where you can tell if someone has actually done any amount of analytical work, either with music, like you can do this with music lyrics or music itself, instrumentals, even or poetry, which would be the easiest way in for an author. I think, um, where you can tell whether or not the person is listening or if they are kind of vomiting their thoughts onto the page without making reference to, is this uh, appealing to some, let's say, what's the right word for it? Something else inside the human being other than merely the content, the information. Is it, is it playing upon them artistically? that mm-hmm. um, I could ramble about that all day. One thing I did want to, to cover is uh, an idea that I talked about with my uh, friend and fellow author, Nathan Cumberledge. He's been on the podcast quite a number of times. And we talked about originality. Now, originality, for its own sake, I don't even think is actually uh, desirable. But we definitely, we don't want a work to feel stale, right? When a work feels derivative, like extremely derivative, that often is off-putting to most readers and his advice and you can tell me what you think about it was like if your work feels derivative you are not reading a wide enough breadth of source materials like you need to read more different things because what's happening is you're essentially he described it as um like literary incest which i think <laughs> yeah right but i think it's it's good right because what ends up happening is you get this un you know dysfunctional thing that's not inspiring Right. So if I only read one narrow line of genres and settings and uh, plot types, then what I end up getting out is something that essentially doesn't inspire the reader. It's definitely not going to inspire another author to write something. And so it fails to reproduce itself. And it's sort of like uh, the, uh, you know, an inbred offspring that becomes infertile over time. Um, And so, you know, what do you think of that idea? That's kind of a crass way to put it
1: yeah I wouldn't I probably would never say that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I understand what what they're saying there. Um, like you this goes back to the beginning of what you were saying with the genres and subgenres and combinations of genres and all that kind of thing. And that is how that happened as opposed to being just one um, one track of um um, action adventure type style, just one track of that. Um, when somebody read um, romance, they put that into it. And so now we have a little bit of YA romance. And it doesn't have to be, you know, an out and out love affair or anything, but the fact that there's an emotional relationship between two characters that includes love. Now we have an action adventure love story as well. So, yeah, merging to. Um, or reading multiple genres leads to that um, combination of genres that we are seeing a lot of. I mean, and it doesn't just have to be two. Um, There are books that mash up three to four genres now, or original genres of what we thought of before. So I think that does come from um, reading multiple ones. And if you do just read one, yeah, you're only going to have a certain set Of information and techniques to pull from. And so, yeah, it becomes kind of um, boring in a way to read the same thing. And when you write, you're not going to have that um, broadened mind in order to pull other things into it.
0: All right. Speaking of broadened minds, Kristen, Mm -hmm. uh, since we've gone on for a while, I wanted to, before we run out of time here today, talk about things that we in particular read that are outside of perhaps um, the genres that either of us maybe write in, but are certainly a a varying genre. So um, what is it that you typically will read? And uh, also, what might you advise that people read um, so that they have a a broader scope? Um, If you don't have anything prepared or listed right away, I could go through some of the, the things that I typically do first.
1: Um, I do have a list of books that I come up came up with, but therefore, they're different. I'll get to those in a minute. Um, I have been reading recently a lot of mystery um, novels, uh, psychological thrillers, those kind of things. Um, but I also enjoy the fantasy of vampires and magic and um, witches and those kind of things. I'm actually... I'm co-writing a book right now on um, that has uh, courtesans and they are witches, so it's pretty cool. Um, but I also have um, oh, I've worked on harem novels, which I'd never read before in my life, um, and that's kind of how I got my start was doing harem novels, which is completely new experience for me. Um, I did enjoy it. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, having multiple relationships and um i was surprised at how much um, plot and action did not involve that romantic relationship but how the author pulled that into it um was really was really fantastic i was impressed by it and i still am um let's see what else do i read um of course i read the classics too i read jane austen and such like that just because I enjoy reading those. I started out reading them because I felt like I should be cultured and read all that stuff, (laughs) but I do enjoy them. So now I'll just pick one up randomly and read it whenever I want. Um, the books though, that I have on my list for suggestions, um, are more to enhance the author's skills. Um, so they're basically, they're ones that are written in omniscient, um, a few in second person and then i have some craft books to mention is that okay
0: oh absolutely yeah anything
1: okay so to get um because a lot of authors think they're writing in omniscient um but they actually head hopping around the characters um, or they think they're writing in third person, but they're actually, um, again, that head hopping from one character's thoughts to another, or from one character's intentions to another. Um, I think it's important to read omniscient and get a sense for that. So there are a few books, um, and these range from in a diff- different genres as well. Um, Bear Town by Frederick Backman, Gossip Girl by Cecilia von Ziegzer I think it's Siegzer. Um Little Women um, by Louisa May Alcott, Good Omens by Neil Gaiman and Terry Pratchett, The Book Thief by Marcus Zusak, and The Girl Who Drank the Moon by Kelly Barnhill. Um, those have a lot of the, um, they're really good, but there's a wide variety there um, from realism to, <clears throat> I'm sorry, to fantasy to what is unfortunately classified as general fiction um, and literary fiction. So you get um, a wide range of genres as well as um, having it all be an omniscient perspective. And then for second person, which to me is the most difficult to write, um, is The Night Circus by aaron Morgenstern brass by and i can't pronounce this last name to be honest with you i'm not really sure let's just say um their last name is well i can pronounce the last name a-l-i-u um and then there's the fifth season by nk jemsen and those are really good for second person and there aren't very many books honestly written in second person it's mostly third person um and even close third person as opposed to um distant third Uh, and then the craft books and this comes with um, storytelling storyline plot um, and other aspects of writing it would be um, if you're writing uh, fantasy the fantasy fiction formula by Deborah Chester goal motivation conflict by Deborah Dixon which is fantastic Um, the emotion thesaurus a writer's guide to character expression by Deborah Puglisi and Angela Ackerman. Um, We talked a lot about evoking emotions in um, in our readers, and this is one of them that um, goes in-depth on how to do that. And then for plot, um, you'll hear this a lot as a suggestion, and it's because it's not just really good at showing you what plot plot points to hit, but also when to hit them why they work. And that Save the Cat writes a novel by Jessica Brody. Now there's a Save the Cat um, movie uh, screenplay one, but this is the this is the um, novel one and it is really good. Um, it breaks it down. And it, I'm not saying that you have to follow these things in order to have a successful novel, but it does give you, um, the concept and the idea of this is what works, this is why it works, and if you choose to deviate from it, you should have a reason for it, because readers expect these things to be in the book. That's what I got for for suggested reading for those three things.
0: <clears throat> well, well, thank you. That was a quite extensive list. I know. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, no, it's, it's, it's great, because a lot of that, um, I'm sure my typical listeners would not be as familiar with. I certainly, um, a lot of the, most of those have not read um, and probably should. So, you know, those of you guys listening, remember you can go back, uh, you know, rewind as they say from the days of the VHS tape um, and, you know, give those, give those list a listen again and pick out some things that sound interesting to you, particularly the craft books are, are, are interest are interesting, are uh, probably vital. So, mm-hmm.
1: The, I wanted to say about the craft books, these, um, I know people don't want to read them because they think they're going to be boring and they're just being told what to do, but these books are actually quite interesting. <laughs> they, they tell things in an um, entertaining way, especially Save the Cat. I mean, that one's just, it's, the guy's funny, or she's funny, sorry, she's funny when she's writing, but um, so it it tells you in an entertaining way and you're reading another type of genre, It's exposure to something else.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's important. What I learned when I was in grad school was uh, the importance of this is not that you read something like that and then you have to follow it.
1: The importance
0: is when you have it, when things are going wrong, you have something to use as a measure to fix what's going wrong because this is the this is the important bit right it's not like read this craft book and follow it it's right. read this craft book and when you're in your doing your writing and you notice you're writing yourself into a corner or you keep having plot holes or people keep telling you your characters are flat or what, like whatever your problems happen to be and you will have them if you have like oh hey by the way if you're writing flat characters you're probably doing x y or z wrong check if you're doing x y or z wrong and that at least gives you a place to, to start. Right, rather than being in the dark, um, and my recommendations actually are drier than a craft book. I think, as this is, no one's going to want to hear this, right? <laughs> but I, I think a lot of authors out there need to get a basic book on grammar and read it. Uh, so, well, yeah, yeah, right. So this is what I'm going to say. My part of my little story. I got my undergraduate degree in exercise physiology, not in writing in literature. Uh, now, I started writing my first novel when I was in um, college, right? So, I was in, doing my undergraduate degree. And I noticed right away when I was doing that, like, oh, my t- like basic writing skills are not proficient enough for me to do what I'm trying to do. Like, I noticed I was struggling to construct sentences properly, like they... Like we mentioned before, they need to sound proper. They need to be the proper length and the right rhythm so that they read well. And I, my sentences were reading very badly. So I went and bought a couple books on grammar, and I spent, uh, I remember a particular weekend, I spent six hours, uh, Saturday and Sunday on that weekend, reading through these books on grammar, right? Most of it reading about commas, which is quite dry. <laughs> Good um, luck. <laughs> Well, commas, yeah, commas are a huge pain. <laughs> uh, but I, 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 I'm saying to all you authors out there, if you have your fundamentals down, you will be much better off. So, yes, read the craft books, and then get a book on English grammar and syntax. Do it and read it, and you're going to. And it could be like an old textbook because I find older textbooks t- typically are better. Modern textbooks are not shockingly useless. Um, you know, I've uh, I, I've been in academia and I've uh, done a little bit of cursory research into the way that those are written, and they are actually like literally a combination of well-intentioned mistakes in in editing per edition, and then a racket with the edition. So, like, you know, find <laughs> older older books on. Uh, grammar and syntax if you can but there are certain ones that aren't like textbooks that are just out there in your local bookstore grab one um, aside from that
1: I think we do would, think a lot of I'm ahead. sorry I think we do think a lot of non-fiction is like a textbook um, but yeah that's actually not true <laughs> um, <clears throat> now the Chicago manual style that's like a textbook <laughs> so I don't recommend Authors need to get that um, book. I do have two um, recommendations for the sentence level and grammar if I can go with that. Please do. Okay, so the first one is editing fiction at sentence level. and that's by Louise Harnby. Um, she uses a ton of examples in hers um, and it's really good for breaking the rules and I know you're you're talking about learning the grammar rules, but she does go over what the rules are and then in what cases uh, they are um, looked upon as good in breaking them and why it's done um, by these certain authors. So I think it's really good for that. And then the other one is actually a Chicago guide um, to copy editing fiction by Amy Schneider. Um, This one just recently came out and... um, they did it because there was nothing for fiction in the original Chicago manual style. Um, So it's kind of a um, a helpful book. And it's, they're also, they're entertaining, I swear they are. Um, But you can learn um, about how to copy edit. So, um, and even with just learning to copy it, you're learning how to write um, with using correct grammar. um, And then again, when to break it. Because in fiction, we do tend to break those grammar rules a lot, but we do need to know them in order to know when to break them.
0: Absolutely. We, uh, As an analog, so I did a traditional martial arts style for a long time, and it was the same kind of rule. Like in In real life, when you actually execute things, you don't do the textbook way. But if you can't do the textbook way, you will fail when you try to improvise more often than you will succeed because there's skills involved with learning the formal structured method that are necessary for the proper execution. Um, Aside from just grammar books, though, I actually recommend many authors read a lot of nonfiction, particularly in regard to ideas. I find that if you want... Now, even if you just want to write escapist literature, I think you should do this because I think your escapist literature will be like generic candy if you don't have anything richer in there for the reader. The reader, even if they don't realize it, likes to feel like they've gained or learned something or that they've developed some way, shape, or how in the reading of their book, even if the morals of your book are very simple. And to actually be able to embed those things into your novel, not even consciously, even if you don't even mean to do it, you have to have some of these ideas in your head. Um, And in order to have that versimilitude that we talked about before, you actually have to have a broad enough reading to be able to accurately represent them. So for instance, I know I deal with a lot of uh, authors now, particularly uh, younger authors, particularly young guys who have been heavily influenced by, let's say, like Japanese animation. It's very, very popular. Uh, mm-hmm. And then they come into literature, and they've got a lot of these uh, you know, themes and settings they want to cover that are inspired by, I don't know, let's say, Japanese culture. It's like, well, did you read any of the Japanese history or philosophy or the Chinese or Indian philosophies that those are derived from? Because if you didn't, then you're going to fail. To to say it to say it bluntly, or if you're trying to cover some deep um, ethical or political thing, like go read a bunch of old political manuscripts, read, especially the ones that you don't like. Definitely go read those ones, one hundred percent, because the antagonist in your book should be believable. If if you're going to do that, if you don't want to, you know, write a, a straw man of your opposite position. So I, and also if you want to be able to to write in such a way that your characters think and act in a believable way, which is to say at least semi-coherently, because to be frank, normal people aren't entirely coherent. So you can go too far with this, right? Like don't read a ton of Aristotle and then write characters that think like Aristotle, because he was definitely, (laughs) uh, nothing wrong with Being autistic, but he was hyper autistic. Everything is hyper systematized. And like nobody, nobody thinks like Aristotle writes at all, ever, ever, (laughs) ever. Um, But definitely read it so that you can have an understanding there of, you know, how these ideas logically follow for one another. So when they they pop up in your fiction, it doesn't feel like the, what I like this word, this phrase rather, that's typically used as skin suit right? That doesn't feel like you're putting on a show, uh, or trying to be pretentious and pretend, pretend at depth, right? Uh, cause there's nothing worse than reading someone pretending to be deep. In terms of, of fiction though, I would also recommend people read some of the classics. Uh, they're, they're dry, they're hard to get through, but I know that, um, you know, getting through in translations even can be very good. Um, now, they're going to have their weaknesses, like you mentioned before, but, uh, you know, reading through Goethe's Faust uh, and then pair that with something originally in English like Paradise Lost with John Milton, uh, that's going to be very, very helpful. Uh, I mentioned Dostoevsky. Uh, I never got all the way through War and Peace by Tolstoy. Um, <laughs> hopefully one day I have time to get all the way through it now. I've read a bunch by Gogol. You can tell I like the Russians. Uh, Gogol's stuff is really great, by the way. It's like these folk stories And they have a lot of these, it's not magical realism. I don't even like that term, but it (laughs) feels something like magical realism in a very folky kind of way um, that we don't see quite a lot anymore. Um, You know, I've read, uh, I haven't gotten all the way through because it's also extremely long uh, journey to the West, but at least get through like the part with Sun Wukong um, because it's like the first giant chunk of it. And there is a lot of, uh, good story structure, particularly thematic depth in that um, reading mythology in general is a great idea for that reason, because there are a lot of ideas that, uh, let's say, harken back through or harken back to the ancient ages, if I say that correctly, Um, or even reading uh, different religious books will help you, right? Like go read, uh, now. That telling someone to go go read a Bible in the Quran uh, or something like that is probably too much because that would take a very long time. But if if you have the time to do it, I would recommend people do that because it is going to inform you about the bedrocks of culture in such a way that your writing will be much, much, much deeper. That would be my writing recommendations. Classics uh, and lots of uh, philosophy. And then, like I mentioned before, grammar. All right. Well, we have chatted on for quite a while. Thank you, Kristen, for for joining me so long. Is there anything else in particular to this topic that you wanted to talk about before we uh, bring it to a close?
1: No, I think we did an excellent job covering it.
0: (laughs) Awesome. All right. Well, before we go, I will send you all to the place where I always send you, wildisle.com. As a quick reminder, I've got all kind of things there on the site. Um, I've got stories and excerpts, essays, blog posts. I write aphorisms each week if you like those, if you're like me, a Nietzsche fan. Um, the podcasts are also there. You can check out my editing service, particularly focusing in on stylistic line editing, the Wild Isle style guide and if you want to check out my novel Want Smoke Broken you can find links there as well as you could you know you could listen to the whole thing on audio uh either on my website or SoundCloud or Spotify or Apple Podcasts and I put the whole thing on YouTube. It's everywhere. There is no reason that you should not listen to this book that I, I made available available to you for free. So listen to it. Uh tell me what you think leave a review out there on Amazon because that would help me quite a bit. And Kristen Yes. again remind everyone where they can check out your stuff
1: uh, you can check me out at nolandediting.com um, i do have some author resources there i've done two courses on developmental editing um, if you'd like to take a look at um, there's one for authors and one for editors um, if you want to take a look at that and you can always book a chat with me on the consultations tab so i look forward to meeting some of you i think that'd be great
0: please do check out uh, Kristen's site and check out our services. It is all quite excellent. All right, guys. Thank you for listening in, and we will see you guys next time. Thank
1: you, Marquis.